Hello and welcome to the B2B Sales Playbook Podcast, brought to you as ever by Lead Forensics. I am your host, Joe Ducaro, and joining me to discuss killer techniques for B2B lead generation is returning guest, Mike Manzi. Mike runs the handle Official Sales Tips on TikToks, where he's amassed a huge number of followers and he always gives great advice when it comes to sales. So, without further ado, here is Mike Manzi on killer techniques for B2B lead generation. Let's get straight into this. Quite apart from, you know, having the lead forensic software to tell you your um, unidentified website visitors, how can a business identify their target audience for effective B2B lead generation? Yeah, there's a couple things that you can do. The first is if you have nobody, you don't exist, you're a brand new product, you have no idea of someone who, who your target market is, you have some guesses, is what I recommend is a value sequence. So you first, you want to go after multiple different types of companies, big, small, uh, title X, title Y, people with problem X, people with problem Y. And you want to get a few hundred of these people at least and start emailing them things that are of value. So let's say you, you sold a gym, you're a gym. I might email CEOs of companies saying, hey, offer this amazing gym as a way to keep your, your employees happy. Uh, reach out to HR execs to go, hey, offer this as a way to differentiate when you're recruiting. Uh, I might reach out to managers to go, hey, keep your employees fit and more motivated, right? So I'm going to try out different messaging and different types of companies and different types of people. And that messaging will be wrapped in this value sequence. What a value sequence is, is it's a sequence where you're, there's no call to action. The only thing there is to do in that sequence is to click a link or respond to get something else of value. So for example, in this gym situation, I might reach out to someone and go, hey, click here to see you know, what some other CEOs are doing to um, retain their staff. Click here to see the article that was just recently written by Forbes about um, motivation and how it's related to physical work, something like that. These are things that if someone clicks that thing, they're potentially interested in the topic that I potentially can help them with. So it's way, 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 way high funnel. Um, and instead of having to spend advertising dollars to see how many people click an ad that's related to what you do and having to create all sorts of ad copy, time consuming, expensive, or instead of waiting for everyone to just randomly come to your website, you can do this beforehand to say, I'm going to send out proactively messages to 5,000 people with five different messages, see which ones get clicked, and that'll give you some ballpark of what people are interested in. Second thing you want me to do in this situation is actually just reach out to folks on LinkedIn, asking for their feedback. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who are CEOs of organizations, and they actually typically say, hey, my first three, four, five customers came from me just doing some research by asking people who are CEOs, VPs, or whatever of organizations saying, what do you guys care about? I have this product. What do you think? How should I adjust it? That's a great way to really start pinpointing who your actual target market is, because I can promise you that whatever you think it is, it's probably somebody different. And then finally, when you're interviewing these folks, the things you want to think about are not just who has a problem that I can solve, because uh, everybody in the world has a problem that a gym can solve, but not everyone in the world goes to a gym. Um, You want to think who has a problem that I can solve uniquely and who has a budget for it. And ideally, is, is, is not as a competitive a market mm. or if you have a ton of money behind you, it's a very competitive market because you're going to overspend everybody and be able to just execute well. 
So for example, I had a cu customer once who did um, virtual events, trying to figure out who their target customer is. So they believe that or half of their company believed it was HR. We want to do virtual events for your, for your current employees. The other half of the company felt like it was marketing. Field marketers want to do events with their customers. So they hired me and said, can you go figure it out? So I went across all these different organizations, HR, marketing, CEOs of companies, to try to figure out who it really is. Turns out, here's what we found out. Their target market is both. Hmm. But, but HR has no cash. Uh, they're, they're averse to risk. And um, they, the, the problem isn't big enough for them to want to bring to someone internally. Marketing has a ton of cash, is not averse to risk, and they have the ability to, to just say yes within their organization. So we shifted the focus of the company to focusing on that target market, even though everyone in the company who said it was HR was absolutely right. But when you think who is the ideal target market, th those questions of who has the cash and who has the ability to move things up, that's who you really want to go after. So those are a couple of things you can do if you have no idea. Otherwise, you're going to want to ask those same questions that we're talking about just now of your current customers, of your current lost customers and what customers. So then uh, just to take that as an example, then, Mike, when you shifted the focus to the marketing guys, what, how, did that, how did your messaging change then? What was it that the exact things that you changed in those messages to get them to engage? Yeah. So what we did with, with uh, the marketing teams was um, – we leveraged one thing of value that we did have in the company at the time, which was some great logos. Now, the reality is those great logos, for the most part, were using us for the uh, events in-house. So HubSpot, Amazon, Facebook, Google, these companies were, were booking events on this platform, primarily, though, for their individual teams. But now we're able to go to the marketers and say, hey, we're working with companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix, and we want to work with you to help you uh, drive more from your, from, from your campaigns, from your field marketing campaign. So that was one thing that we did was actually look at what assets do we have and how can we use those. The other thing that we did was we, we tweaked the messaging using some of the frameworks that, that I typically recommend for people. One of which is using peers. I'm working with your peers app. Mm. Another one, which is using very, very short um, content in your, in your, our email outreach. Another one is you want to focus on a specific trigger. So instead of just like, you're a marketer, you probably want to sell stuff. We help people sell stuff with cool events. It was, you have this, uh, you guys just got your series A funding six months ago, probably, which probably means you're under a lot of pressure for them to see results from all the field marketing campaigns you've been spending a ton of money on before you guys go for your B funding. That's a real stress that someone's actually feeling. So we would target the outreach to a specific stressor because people make decisions only based out of a need to get rid of a stress uh, versus just on a generic situation like you're a marketer. Mm. Those are a couple of things that we did to, to make the outreach more effective. And now they close some deals with some of the largest brands that you guys, have, everybody here has heard of uh, because we focus on, on that aspect of it. I think finally, though, what I will say is the third element of this is uh, really focusing on the uniqueness of, of what they offered. So instead of we can do what you're already doing better, faster, cheaper, which is what I think most companies do, we focused on what we were doing was completely different. You, what you, we would actually say what you're doing is incorrect. Uh, what you're doing seems to be the right thing because it's safe, because it's what everyone else is doing, because it, it's it, you can attribute revenue to it. However, 
your buyers don't like that. That's why you have to actually flip it a little bit on its head. And that I think A, intrigues people, but B, that challenger methodology gets people to see, uh, you know what? I think I knew I was wrong. Mm. I'm doing it because of these variety of reasons that are telling me to do it. Hearing you say that, you've made it too clear. I got a response. Mm, absolutely. So then you mentioned as well in, in your response there, um, the very short samples of content that you would include in those emails. Can you give us a couple of examples of what that might be or what that might look like? Sure. So I have all these sequences written um, in my own bio and places you can get them, but <clears throat> to give you sort of like the, the top tricks, um, one is you want the subject line to be either one or two sent one or two words um, related to what you do. So it might be like revenue or whatever, or 10 plus words. I also found one of my best performing subject lines is I'm really impressed with what you did with blank. I uh, would love to get in touch with you and learn more about that. Huge sentence, but mm. it's a pattern interrupt that gets people to actually answer. Um, answer. Next thing that we would do is we would mention the that stressor in the first sentence, and then we'd add on to it. So we would say, for example, hey, saw that you guys recently got your A funding, which typically means that you're under the gun to make sure that all the field marketing events you're doing are driving revenue at this point, uh, period. And then we might say, at this point, you're probably getting yelled at about all the money you're spending. <laughs> so it's like we add a little bit of something else to be like, no, 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 we, we really do understand the situation. Hmm. Um, another example of this uh, for my own business, I might reach out to someone and say, hey, I just saw that you're finishing up your first year as a CEO of an organization and you still don't have a head of sales. Probably means that you're, you're running out of your network to start closing deals for you and you're freaking out. Okay. So we do, we add in something to get them to understand it, something to get them to go, Oh, you get me. Yeah. And then we add one or two word question. Why, why does that keep happening? Why is that going on? How come some version of that? And what I find is this gets them to move their eye down, down the email. I think it's just easier to read. So what really happens is they come to the email, they go, who the heck is this? They see this like, how come? And they go, wait, what is that in reference to? They read your first sentence. They go, oh, he actually knows what he's talking about. Then the third line, you want to balance explaining exactly what you do with intrigue. So if you just say like, we are, this platform does all of these things and here's how it works. You're like, great. I don't need to go to your website. I, I know something in my head of similar to what you do. I don't care. Um, so you might want to say instead, or what we would do instead, is say something like, we help organizations stop um, losing money from their, from their events by using a platform that allows you to engage your, your customers more. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, X company recently saw X result. Let's get, you know, let me know if you're interested in learning what they did. So the, the, the last thing I'll say there is the, the call to action. We've messed with a lot of different ones. Mm. Um, let me know if you want me, you know, like, let me know if you'd like me to tell you what they did, or let me know if you're interested in hearing how that went. Our couple, um, Gong keeps telling everybody to say, are you interested in learning more? And we've tried that. Um, I have found for me, the best is, are you available at X time on X date? Like one time mm -hmm. on one date, majority of the time they say no, but Thursday works. Um, so those are the few key things that we're doing in the emails, trying to keep it to five sentences max. And every sentence should be on a different line. 
And I suppose, yeah, so it's it's a fine balance between, as you say, like showing you how, the, how you have a depth of knowledge and a depth of understanding, but at the same time, just leaving that tiny little bit of mystery, of intrigue, like with the brevity of it as well, which is probably quite totally. a fine balance. I found actually to your point on um, just offering, are you available on X time, X day? When I'm booking podcast guests, I always get a response that's much more positive using that that exact technique than if I say, hey, can we sort out a date or a time? So yeah, like, sure. That, absolutely. In fact, I think we might have done it for this. I think we said, right, so how's this for you? Probably, I mean, yeah. yeah, there we go. So, yep. <laughs> so um, I mean, we've spoken there, Mike, about email, um, outreach, that sort of thing. You obviously run official sales tips uh, on TikTok to, to great success. What what techniques do you implement for lead gen using social media then? Yeah. So with social media, I, I think anybody who's freaking out or unsure about social media, you think about just how content is done today. If you're, if you're a company and you're, you're trying to drive traffic to your website, what you do is uh, you create articles. And you hope those articles get indexed on Google, and then it brings you back to your website. And those articles that you write, you try to have them be as topical and as thought-provoking as possible. Everyone knows thought leadership. If you are seen as someone who knows what you're talking about, people will then go to your website or your product or whatever to, to try to buy it. Now, 50 years ago or whatever, even not 50 years ago, 20 years ago, this was done through books, HubSpot, predictable revenue. And now everybody's got books. And at some point, Neil Patel or whoever figured out it's articles. And now it's social media. So I'm doing the exact same thing that anybody else is doing with articles, with books, with videos, with events that they're going to. But instead of having to get published by Penguin or get a team of article writers um, or AI to write me thousands of articles and hope they're kind of valuable, of which, by the way, everybody's now is leaving Google but Google is getting less people searching on it now because everybody knows every article is written by someone who has a side uh, reason for writing this article. Um, and instead, I'm doing that in the car on my way home from daycare. It takes me about five minutes per, per post uh, to, do, to make this content. The key that I find is really twofold. I remember really three, I guess. The first is authenticity. You need to be real. Everybody I know, you know, companies I've worked for, marketing organizations, they start, they need to make content. And so they hire content writers who are inexpensive. And then they have those content writers maybe interview somebody who's really smart and then try to make content off of it. And so it gets kind of, it's like kind of not great content. Or they do hire someone who's really smart and it's really, really expensive and they can't get the volume out. So instead, um, I try to just be authentic as to what I am an expert in. And I would recommend that these companies that are using content, like written content, get that, take that interview from that person that the interview, they spent a bunch of money on, turn that into a hundred different video clips, a hundred different t tweets, a hundred different articles, um, as opposed to just like get turning it into notes on someone's notebook and, and mm. creating articles from them. So that's authenticity. Um, I think in the knowledge that I have, I think the, the other is authenticity in, in how you share it. I've seen, I recently was trying to look for different things to do. I was going on a trip to New York and I'm like, oh, I'll go to New York. And I'll, I'll go to TikTok. That's how I search for things now. I'd rather watch 
110 second videos and go through 100 articles in Google and have them all drive me to some BS blog. So anyways, what I do is I'm going to, uh, what, what I found rather when I searched for it is everyone has the same like cadence. Hey everybody, welcome to New York City. If there's three things that you want to do when you're in New York, the first thing you and I find this is also true for so many articles that are written. People are trying to become more and more similar to each other versus having their own way of talking. And I think that people, even brands themselves, they want to be in control over that, how that, um, how the, the how they talk, even in articles. Where I think it actually would allow writers or video makers or whatever is if they could speak in their own authentic voice. People can hear that and understand that more. Um, and then I think finally, it's just trying to make the content as impactful as possible where, you know, some of the most watched YouTube videos that are educational are like the ultimate guide to, or how to guides. People don't care about like philosophies and thoughts. They want to know like, what is the individual thing I can do right now? If you can give me a checklist, I'd rather a checklist than a book. I'd rather a checklist than an article than a video. So try to put things in a way that people can immediately take and almost use as a reference guide. If they can't, if they can't get value, they can't make an impact on their day to day within an hour, you've done something incorrect and you got to kind of go back to the drawing board. So authenticity uh, is something that's really key, making sure the impact can be seen really quickly and authenticity in terms of the actual valuableness of the content. It's it's interesting because I suppose you know as you mentioned you know uh, however many years ago it was books and everything. As soon as that book's published, that's out of date. That information it's it's six months ago. You're looking back now, so I suppose the the availability of just being able to, as you say, you know, with the authenticity piece, just in your car on your website. Hey, here's how you do this. You know, right today I tried this today. This works today. Not eight months ago, eight years ago, I read this book on sales like. And that's why they keep just coming out like new editions, which is just like adding an introduction. I'm writing a book right now, but really I'm going to release it probably as a booklet, something online. So I don't go through the process of publishing. I want it to be available today and use it while it's hot. Because in a couple of months, yeah, this thing was useless. I want to come back to something that you mentioned earlier about you you did mention sort of um, volume, not being able to get out as many calls, emails, posts, whatever it might be. Um, I think the the figure that's... uh, ascribed to it. i think it's like 100 100 calls whatever it is is there any smarter way to know how much outreach you need to do to generate leads yeah and i'll tell you this if you're an owner of an organization or you're somebody who might hire a manager to run the bdrs or whatever if the person you're interviewing ever says you got to do 100 calls 50 dials 25 x's whatever run away because that person doesn't actually have know what they're talking about is it 100 calls I should make? Is it 125? Is it 12? What you want to do is you want to actually, before you do any planning on even number of hires you should make, like the first, first, first thing you should be doing is going, how much revenue do I want? Based on our win rates, how many customers is that? Based on our uh, win rates of, of customers, how many opportunities do I need to create? Do I have any historical data to prove how many calls or emails or people it takes to generate one opportunity. So if you last year I made a thousand phone calls and I booked a hundred meetings, that means every 10 phone calls equals a lead. Therefore, if I want to book a hundred meetings, I need a thousand phone calls. So you first want to work backwards from revenue down to number of meetings. 
and then how many activities per meeting and how many contacts per meeting. Then you want to take those numbers and divide it by the number of humans that, uh, that you want to hire. Or better yet, you divide it by the capacity hmm. of, number of, of number of activities a human can do. So most organizations I walk into, they say, yeah, we want to hire two BDRs. I'm like, why? They're like, oh, yeah, we're really busy. We want to book a lot of meetings. So we'll work backwards from revenue to say, okay, you got to do 100,000 activities next year. So that means you got to do whatever, uh, 2,000 activities a week. How many activities can a BDR do in a week? Let's say we, we come to a number based on the kind of company, it's 1,000. Well, now we know how many BDRs to hire. Sometimes there's a lot more than they think they want to hire. And sometimes it's none at all because really they can do it on their own. But that's how you want to actually do it. And now the, the tool, the system that I've been setting up for people, which is using this tool called instantly.ai, I'm able to send out 25,000 emails a week through myself and my, my customers, all without having any SDRs. So that's a whole other story for another time, but that's how you want to figure it out. Say you want to work backwards from revenue to ops, ops to activities. Now you know your number of activities to do. Divide that by the capacity of a person. That's how many calls to make. That's how many emails to make. In fact, when I talk to reps, I say to the rep, what do you want to close? Not what's your quota. What do you want to close? And let's, let's look at you historically, how many ops it takes for you to close a deal, how many activities it takes to get an opportunity. Okay, for you, rep. You need to do this many activities per day to hit whatever target is you want to hit. Don't wait for your manager to tell you 100. It's almost the first thing I ask every rep. Does your manager tell you to make 100 calls? They all say yes. I then say, screw that. Let's figure it out for you. What is that number? And companies should be doing that at a company level, obviously. So then, again, not to, you know, I don't want to spend the entire my entire time talking plug-in lead forensics, but let's say what, other than sure. signing up for lead forensics, how can you ensure that the quality of your leads are up to scratch? So figuring out the quality of your leads is up to scratch can be kind of tough. The first thing you want to do is obviously just make sure that they're not going to bounce. So you want to go to a company like Unbounce and just put the, put the leads in there to make sure that they're not going to bounce. The next thing that you want to do when I think about quality of leads is actually just closeness to challenge. Like the quality of a lead is a weird thing. It's like, how quality are the humans? Mm. I don't know. Maybe they're huge pieces of crap. <laughs> so really the quality of a lead is just how close they are, how stressed they are about a challenge that you can solve. People only make change when their stress level is so high that they're willing to spend money. All of us are overweight. You only actually go to the gym or, lose, or try to lose weight when you look down the scale and you go, holy crap, that's too big of a number. Right. So we want to find everyone who's going, holy crap, that's too big of a number in relation to proposals or whatever else it is that you sell. So to me, to define the quality of is actually to define the um, insecurity or stressful moment, mm -hmm. which a lot of times is when they've made a, a brand new hire for something. So if I sell something to marketing and they just invested in a new CMO for the first time, they're probably stressed about something in marketing or they posted a job. When you come up on the end of the year, everybody's stressed about how we're gonna duplicate this next year. When they're six, eight, nine months into getting some funding, because everyone's like, oh, this funding will get us a year and a half. No, well, they're gonna freak out about a year in, investors are gonna say, where's the cash? So when they're through funding, not when they first get it, when they first get it, there's no stress. Um, when they hit certain milestones of years, year one, year three, year five, year 10, 
when they hit certain milestones of revenue, you know, how are you going to duplicate that again? And I'd like to always look too at um, stressful moments in, in terms of revenue or time versus hires. So am I stressed out if I'm a CEO who's made $10 million? Maybe, maybe not. Am I stressed out if I'm a CEO who's made $10 million and I don't have a head of sales and I've, only been, and I've been in business for one year? You're probably stressed out to the, to the max. Like something happened and now you have to hire somebody, but you just built a company at $10 million. You are stressed how you're going to offload this to somebody else. So thinking both about revenue or time moments, first year, second year, third year, and hires. Did I hire someone? Should I hire someone? Did I just hire someone? Those things can help you understand if someone's feeling stressed, and that will, to me, indicate if they are or are not high quality. Excellent stuff, Mike. Thank you. Uh, so I'm going to start bringing our conversation to a close now. So thank you for joining us for the, for this conversation. If I could push you sure. for one the one key lesson that you would like everybody watching this to take away from it, what is the one key thing they have to get right for uh, for lead generation? The number one thing that's important is segmenting your audience. What I recommend that my clients do is we create one or two main sequences. We then segment their audience in three ways. Company type, big, small, private, public. Um, Title, VP, CEO. Insecurity or stressful moment like we just talked about. Then I write a value prop for each of those situations. And I simply tweak each of the sequences to have one of those value props. So now I can write a mass volume of content without sacrificing the personality or the the personalness of that content because I've segmented the audience to specific challenge title and company type. That's what I would recommend everybody do. Amazing stuff. Well, Mike Manzi, we will see you again very soon. Mike, thanks very much for joining. Thank you. Well, there you go. Mike Manzi there returning on Killer Techniques for B2B Lead Generation. Thank you very much to Mike again for joining me and thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to the B2B Sales Playbook podcast wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating where possible. We'll be back next week with another excellent edition of the B2B Sales Playbook podcast.